Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Hey, listen, what we're doing the entire year, if you're newer to City, is we are slowly moving through the kingdom of God. What is it, and how do you live in it? And this morning's sermon is one that I know was challenging for me to study. It was challenging for me to preach to myself. And yes, I preach the sermons to myself. And I also know it's going to be very challenging for some of us as we look again at the kingdom of God through the lens of the book of Isaiah, a prophet who wrote 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, what I want us to do and I normally don't do this, as I'm going to ask that we would just take a moment to pray. I want to thank Mark for his prayer. It was awesome. But I want us to pray just for a moment. And if you're comfortable doing this, it's great. If not, that's fine. But if you would just take the posture of humility and receptivity before the Lord as we pray, kind of put your hands in your lap, and let's pray. Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in Charlottesville, in this sanctuary, in our lives, as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. So the kingdom of God, the book of Isaiah, and Jesus. For those of us who've never read the Bible before, which is totally fine, we have been looking at the book of Isaiah for the past several weeks and then looking at what Isaiah had to say about Jesus. And what I want to look at this morning is how did Jesus reach back to the book of Isaiah 700 years after it was penned and then import pieces of the book of Isaiah into his own preaching, teaching, and ministry. A quick thumbnail sketch of the book of Isaiah is this. First chunk, there's four parts to the book of Isaiah. The first part is simply this, God's judgment. God shows up to Israel and says, because you've been doing this, then judgment comes. So the beginning of the book of Isaiah is about God saying to his people, not to people who are outside of his kingdom, but to his people, here's where you've missed it, and then judgment so the first two chunks are, here's where you've missed it, and here's why I'm judging you. The next chunk of the book of Isaiah, which begins in about chapter 40 and goes through the, mid, or the early to mid chapter 50s or so, is a chunk where God, through the prophet Isaiah, begins to say to his people, I'm calling you to be faithful and patient in the midst of suffering. I'm calling you to be faithful and patient in the midst of suffering. And then the tail end of the book of Isaiah talks about how God is going to redeem all things. God's going to do amazing things for those who are patient and faithful in suffering. And in the end, God will do great things. And there's hints towards the fact that God says, I'm going to go do them through a person. There will be someone that will show up. And when that someone shows up, you're going to know it, and I will do a new thing. Well, what's interesting to note 
is Jesus in his ministry reaches back oftentimes to the latter part of the book of Isaiah and say, "Uh, you know Isaiah who said someone would come? That's me. Jesus does that. Now what I want to do this morning is we're going to read a little bit more scripture than normal. I want to read an episode from the life of Jesus that's Luke chapter 4 verses 14 through 30. It's where Jesus gets rejected at Nazareth, and if you know the name of Jesus, there are no last names in the Older Testament, only first names, so Jesus is known as Jesus of what? Nazareth, because there's no last names. They had to have a way of denoting you, and oftentimes it was where you were from. So Jesus now goes to his hometown, and he gets rejected by his hometown people. Here's the episode from the life of Jesus. In it, by the way, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah. Here's what the text says. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. It's going really well for Jesus. And then he went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, I want you to say those two words out loud. Ready? Sabbath day, we're going to be talking about that. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. By the way, those two words, good news, are the words gospel, literally gospel, So it says that Jesus came to proclaim the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus references a specific year where God's favor would be on his people And in his inaugural sermon in his hometown, he says, that year is here. It's very fascinating. Reading on. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know the thing Isaiah talked about 700 years ago? I'm fulfilling it. That'll make people look at you. You imagine someone would to stand up in this sanctuary and look at everyone and say, you know what the prophet said 700 years ago? Guess what? It's me. And everyone would look at you. And the text says that they're looking at him. The eyes of everyone We're on in verse 22 goes on and says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then someone in the back of the room shouted out, ain't this Joseph's boy? And Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. And truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there, were a, there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to one of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And what Jesus does very quickly there is important. Jesus references two Older Testament people that God did amazing things for, and they were, by the way, Israel's enemies at the time of Jesus, as well as back in history. But I want you to notice something. Jesus chooses a woman as an example of faithfulness and a man. By the way, watch for that whenever you read the Gospels. Jesus elevates women at a level that had never been heard of before. Jesus does it again. Reading on, it says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I've stood right where that happened in Israel. Well, when you look at the story, Jesus shows up. He's obviously some type of a hometown hero. Everyone's come to hear him teach and preach. And they've showed up in the synagogue. They begin by clapping. And at the end, they're trying to kill him. And so you think to yourself, wait, what? How did that happen? What we discover, though, is, is that Jesus is quoted from the book of Isaiah. In fact, here's the direct quote from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And if you were to look at it in your scriptures, it's called the year of the Lord's favor. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the gospel, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, what we begin to discover is is that there's a switch of mood in the room. Have any of you ever been at a function where it was going really well and then someone said something and the air left the room? Have you ever experienced that? How about like last Thanksgiving or Christmas or something, right? You're gathered with family, someone says something and everyone goes, oh no, they just did that. Well, here's Jesus. He shows up. And what Jesus does is he quotes from the book of Isaiah a passage that everyone is familiar with. Everyone knows this passage. And yet something happened that caused the people in that room to turn on Jesus. And I want us to discover why. Well, what we know is Jesus announces that the year of the Lord's favor is now here. Now, what we need to know, though, from the Older Testament is that the year of the Lord's favor is also known as the year of Jubilee in the Older Testament. Now, for those of you who have never really studied the Bible, I'm going to get us all on the same level playing field so we can understand what happened. What you would discover in the Older Testament, and remember, Jesus is Jewish, in the Older Testament, he is part of a people that have a lengthy, lengthy history. And in that history, God has done incredible things. 
But one of the most amazing things, in fact, the most amazing things to the Jewish people that God ever does in the Older Testament is he delivers his people from slavery and bondage and being prisoners to Pharaoh from Egypt. It's one of the biggest things God does. In fact, God self-identifies as the God who did that for the entire Older Testament after that event. If you look in the Older Testament from the Exodus on, God shows up and says, I'm the God that set you free. That's how God identifies God's self. Now, as part of God setting his people free, God does something that's very fascinating. It's amazingly fascinating. He shows up to his people and he says, I'm going to introduce something to you that's key. And it's this. It's called Sabbath. I want you to look at your neighbor and say Sabbath. Real quick. What does Sabbath mean? It means to stop and to rest. Now let me tell you a question. My dad would phrase it that way when I knew I didn't want to give the answer. I want to tell you a question. How many of you, without a show of hands, without looking at anyone next to you, need rest? How many of you? How many of you, it goes way beyond rest? You're completely burnt out and exhausted. And you have propped yourself up for days, sometimes months, and sometimes years. Now, I don't want to ask for a show of hands with that one. But what I do know is, is that there are a lot of people who live in the kingdom of God or people who are checking out the kingdom of God who are people who walk with Jesus, but they walk exhausted, burnt out, fried. The joy of life has exited stage left so long ago, they can't remember when it was around. But what fascinates me is that Jesus, when he goes to his hometown, begins to talk about the year of the Lord's favor. When he does that, every Jew that's sitting there in that synagogue knows what I'm getting ready to share with us. They all know it. And it's this. Whenever God talks about rest, he speaks of Sabbath Now, quick thing here. In the Older Testament and in the Newer Testament, because Jesus lived this, there's this thing called Sabbath, which means to stop and to rest. And in the Older Testament, God comes to his people and he presents to his people the following in the Ten Commandments. Now, I have a question for you. How many of you think the Ten Commandments apply to us today? Right? How about thou shalt not kill? How about thou shalt not steal? How about thou shalt not lie about people and tell untruths? Should we keep going? Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? We all love those. Until we get to the fourth commandment. Let me read it for us. Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the... By keeping it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, and on it you shall not do any work. 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the... Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so here's what we know. In the Older Testament, the number seven is the number of completion, completeness. And God comes to his people and he says, look, I worked for six days and on the seventh I want you to Sabbath. I want you to stop and to rest. And then God, as he leads his people out of bondage to Pharaoh, where they have worked 365 days out of year, 14 to 18 hours a day, they had no rest, no peace, nothing but work. It was work, work, work. God says, Pharaoh was your king, now I'm your king, and what I'm going to tell you is, when you come under my kingship, you take a day off. Now that sounds really good if you've been in bondage to the king of Egypt. You're going to take a day off. And God says, not only that, I'm going to put that law right next to thou shalt not kill. Like right there. I mean, it's a big one here. You need to take a day of rest. The question in my own life and to you is why don't we do this? Why don't we rest? Why don't we take a day off? Now, to make matters even more challenging in the Older Testament, it begins with every seventh day, but as you read more into Leviticus, which is the law of God for his people, we pick up in Leviticus 25 that there's now a Sabbath year. So every seven days you take a rest, but God in his law to his people said, every seventh year you take the year off. And all God's people said, a year off always sounds better than a day off, doesn't it? Now, here's what the text says. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, so he's receiving the law of God, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields and for six years prune your vineyards and gather the crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Isn't that fascinating? God says for an entire year, you're going to trust me. You're not going to plow. You're not going to sow. You're going to trust me, and I'm going to provide. And then what God does is even bigger. What God says in Leviticus 25, 8 through 17, is not only will there be a seventh year where the land is going to rest, But he comes to his people in Leviticus 25, 8 through 17, and it's called the year of Jubilee or the year of God's favor. Here's what God says to his people. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years, so seven sevens. And on the 50th year, then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout the land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. 
It shall be a jubilee for you. Jubilee means to celebrate. Each of you is to return to your own family property and to your own clan. The 50th year will be a jubilee year. Do not sow, do not reap what grows or itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee. It is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. Now, what we now discover is there are seven years times seven, and it becomes the year of Jubilee or the year of God's favor. And in that year, it gets real fascinating, and here's where the challenge begins for me and you. In that 50th year, here's what God says must happen. I want us to listen. Leviticus 25, 39 to 41. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as higher workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released. And they will go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. What we begin to discover is Every 50 years, God demands his people do the following. Year of Jubilee, or year of the Lord's favor, all land returns to its original owners, all indebted and indentured people are set free, and all debts are canceled. I want you to think deeply about this. Here Jesus says, And he pulls from the book of Isaiah in his own hometown and he reminds them again that there's this thing called the year of Jubilee or the year of God's favor in which all debts are canceled, all of those people who are indentured servants are set free, and all land that had to be sold because you couldn't make the payments or your crops failed or whatever the case may be gets returned to its original owner. God says, this is my law. Now, how do we put feet to our faith with this? When we think of where Israel has come from, where Israel came from, they were working 365 days a year, seven days a week. And God shows up to them and says, oh no, in my kingdom, you're gonna take a day of rest. Every seventh day, you will rest. You're going to take a break. And what I know is, that's very hard for us, and here's why. Pharaoh still lives. There's this thing called Pharaoh, the Newer Testament calls it the spirit of the age, which shows up to every follower in Jesus and says, you can't take a day off. You need to work seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. You can't take a break. Now, I'm going to prove to all of us that every one of us gets miffed when we think about Sabbath rest. I've got definitive proof, and every one of us has gotten ticked off about Sabbath. And it has to do with this little thing on the screen. Am I right? How many of you have gotten up on a Sunday and said, I want to go to Chick-fil-A, and you think, how dare they? 
take a day off. I want me some Chick-fil-A. What's wrong with these people? How dare they take a day off? You know that whole company is built on Sabbath rest. By the way, their income is 5x the normal McDonald's. Now, here's what I want to say. Is that God shows up to me and you as followers of Jesus, and in putting feet to our faith, we need to begin to consider a Sabbath. We, mean, we need to begin to understand that God comes to us and says, you can live under Pharaoh if you want to, or you can live under me as your king. And if you live under me as your king, I think in my life and in yours, something has to change. And it's the answer to this question, what is success? What is success? What does it look like? You see, in Pharaoh's kingdom, success looked like you were only valuable because of what you could produce. Success was working and achieving and accomplishing. And in the kingdom of God, God shows up and Jesus reminds us. And Jesus comes to us, and when he shows up, success looks like taking a Sabbath. That's success in the kingdom. But we've bought into Pharaoh's world. We've bought into serving a different king. And yet Jesus shows up and goes, oh, no, no, no. In my kingdom, I relieved you from Pharaoh. And in my kingdom, you take a break. You take a day. And the text says you are to remember. Interesting to note that all the rest of the Ten Commandments are thou shalt not. This one says remember. Remember the Sabbath. You know why? It's easy to forget. But the text says, remember. Remember the Sabbath. So I have a question for me and for you. What does success look like in your life? Does success in your life look like what it looked like under Pharaoh? Building huge things having the best of everything all the time, all of the pomp and circumstance, notoriety, conquering. And then suddenly we step into a kingdom where success looks like everyone's debt is canceled and they're set free. Could you imagine what success would look like in our culture if you knew every 50 years, the land that has been devoured by land barons had to be given back to the original people. Could you imagine what success would like in a, look like in a culture where debts are forgiven every 50 years? What would it look like then? And so Jesus shows up to his hometown and he reminds them of this. And they say, we're going to throw you off a cliff. I think one of the reasons why taking this message home is the toughest thing to do. It's easy to hear about it in theory, but it's challenging to do in practice. But I can't help but hearing Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me... All you who are weary and burdened, 
and I'll give you rest. But you see, that's part of a bigger sentence that Jesus speaks. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take, what are the next two words? My yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You'll find Sabbath for your souls. For, what are the next two words? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a yoke is in the Jewish faith is a rabbi's teachings. It's called his yoke. It's the thing that you link to that rabbi with. It's his teaching. And Jesus says this, if you'll trust me and you'll attach your life to me, if you'll be yoked to me, what you'll discover in me is rest, is Sabbath. He says, I promise you that. But a yoke is a teaching, which means we need to relearn how we're doing life. We need to be willing to set aside what we've believed and how we've done and be willing to come to him and say, Jesus, I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out, I'm fried, the joy of life entered, exited stage left so long ago, I can't even remember what it is. And Jesus says, will you come to me? And would you be willing to step into a Sabbath? Would you be willing to redefine what success looks like? Would you be willing to do this? I'm going to ask in this moment you would stand with me. Would you stand just for a moment into God's presence? And I want us to stand together and to close our eyes for just a moment. It's not lost on me that Pharaoh's definition of success and life fulfillment is something that can invade a pastor's heart as much, of any, as much as anyone's in this congregation. But Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, if you're weary, I can give you rest. I can give you what you're looking for. But part of that is Sabbath. It's where for one day we cease to work and we rest. In the present working of God's Spirit, I'd like for you to take just a moment. And would you, in God's present working of His Holy Spirit, open your heart to what God would say to you? Success, rest, weariness. What we want to do now as the worship team comes to lead us is we're going to open up this front for a time of prayer. If the Spirit would lead you, I'd invite you to come stand or sit or to kneel up front as you would take a step towards responding to the Lord for what the Spirit's pressing into your heart. Maybe some of you don't need to move. 
You could do that right where you're at, but others may feel the sense of the Spirit to do that, to step out and to come forward, to spend time alone with the Lord at this altar. But could we, as the worship team leads in worship, every woman and man here, be open to Sabbath, to rest, to Jesus, that we would move our lives from the Pharaoh of this culture underneath the kingship of Jesus.